0: Worship team. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church right now, so you can make your way there. There we go. And let's take our Bibles. Um, I think if we turn these monitors off, that shuts off the uh, feedback. There we go. Sound like I'm echoing in my own head. It drowns out the voices that I hear in there, so that's a little confusing. All right, let's, uh, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Acts chapter 6, and uh, we're going to be looking at this passage where we find that God's work continues in the face of inner and outer conflict. You know, as we've looked at the church and its growth in the book of Acts for the first five chapters, we've seen the church described as coming together in one accord, being unified, being of one mind great descriptions for the church. But you know what? Satan is not happy when a church is unified. So he's going to do anything that he can to stir up contention and dissension and try and cause strife. And that's what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 6. And very often that strife is caused because we forget the most important thing that we're called together to do as a church there's the story of a life-saving station and i'd like to read this story to you perhaps you've heard it but it certainly bears repeating and here's the story on a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur there was once a crude little life-saving station the building was just a hut and there was only one boat but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea And no one thought of themselves, and they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money in an effort to support the work. New boats were bought and new crews trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some members of the life-saving station were happy that the building or unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. And they felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in a larger building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they decorated it beautifully and they furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was even a miniature lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half drowned people. They were dirty and sick. Some of them were of differing ethnic backgrounds. The beautiful new club was in chaos, so the property committee immediately had a shower built outside the club. Where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life saving activities, since they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station, but they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save lives, all they had to do was go start another life-saving station, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old It evolved into a club, and yet another life saving station was founded, and history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Now, we can see parallels, obviously, between this and unfortunately the church. And I'm not talking about Oakland Bible Church. I'm talking about the church, all churches that lose their perspective, that become distracted and forget their main purpose. When we come to the book of Acts, chapter six, we find a reminder that in the early church, the apostles told the people what they had to do to stay on task, to make sure that they didn't lose perspective. What we want to see this morning, and by the way, if you're new to us, we have an outline that's right in the bulletin with blanks on it. The yellow words are words that you can fill in the blank if you choose to. But let's talk about what was going on here in Acts chapter 6. There was a distraction that had come into the church, and it was a legitimate concern. But sometimes even legitimate concerns can take our eyes off of what God has called us to do. We need to be people who are faithful to do what God calls us to do. And what happened because of this concern was some dissatisfaction that grew in the church body. When we find the first verse of Acts chapter 6, we see the situation laid out for us. And we see that there was the potential for a huge division within the church over an area of important ministry. Look at the first verse. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, what we find in this passage is a church that was caring for the needs of others. And we've seen this earlier, haven't we? We saw that people were actually selling their possessions to meet the needs of those who had needs within the church body. So as they were conducting this ministry to those in need, one need in the first century that could not go ignored was the need to reach out and care for widows. You see, in the first century society, they didn't have government assistance, and for many of the believing widows, perhaps they were disowned by their families, So there was no one there to provide for their needs. We find that in Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul talks about this when he says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first Of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying to their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. So in instances where there wasn't a family that was either available or able to care for the widow, the church took on this responsibility, and it was something that God would have us do. This was a ministry that that was an important ministry, a Christ-centered ministry, an obedient ministry. But what happened? Within their conducting this ministry, Human beings sometimes lose perspective. We allow our prejudices, we allow our own preferences to raise up, and we divide over them. So what was going on here was this. The Jewish followers, they were in Jerusalem, gave priority to those who were from the Holy Land, the Middle East. There were many Grecian Jews that had emigrated into Jerusalem, and they had widows who were in need there as well. So what happened? They focused on their own, when in reality, all of the believers were their own, but they allowed their cultural divisions to divide them, something that is not according to the will of God. God doesn't want us to look at one another in light of our gender, in light of our cultural background, our race, any of those things. God wants us to not show favoritism. And that's brought out clearly by James when he says this, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The favoritism that was going on in the early church had to be addressed. And so the apostles wanted to step in and see to it that the church didn't divide over this issue and to see that fairness was employed, that there wasn't this favoritism that was causing injustice within the ministry of the church to those in need. And that's where we pick it up here in this verse. This division is going on, so what happens? In verse 2, the disciples choose to delegate the ministry to others. You know, there's a temptation sometimes for leaders in the church to look and to say, I'll just do the need of that ministry so I'll know that it gets done. But what God teaches us is the importance of allowing people within the church body to use their spiritual gifts and to become engaged in ministry so that you don't just have the professionals doing the work of the ministry, but you have people who are called within the pews to step up and step out and carry on the ministry. That's what the apostles recognized here. And so look at that second verse. The twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. You see, apparently in the early church, there were these booths or these tables that were set up to care for the needs of the widows. And so the apostles could have said, well, you know what? We won't pray together anymore and we won't go out and share the Word of God. We'll just take care of our internal needs. And they would have been like that life-saving station, wouldn't they? They would have forgotten the overall objective, the importance of them as a church body coming together and working within God's will to minister to people in the church but also to minister to those outside the church, to carry the Word of God to the lost, vital that they do that. And so that's what we find here. Here are these people, they are coming together and they are trying to make a decision, how can we address this issue? You know, Howard Hendricks, he's home with the Lord now, but I always appreciated his wit. He gave this illustration. He said the church is often like a professional football game you have 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest, being watched by thousands of people in the stands desperately in need of exercise. (laughs) And that's kind of a picture sometimes of what goes on in the church, isn't it? The apostles were saying, no, we're not going to do everything. We're going to present this problem to the church body And we're going to invite the church body to find a solution with us to this issue. And part of that solution will mean delegating to them responsibilities so that they can carry on the work of the ministry. And that's what they did. When we come to verse 3, we find that there is teaching here concerning the solution and how the leaders of the church depended on others to share the load. So look at this third verse. Brothers, to seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The apostles remembered their objective to pray and minister the word. And so to address the issue, notice they called upon the church body to provide those who would carry on the ministry to these women, these widows. So they're calling on the church to step up, to become engaged in this. And notice they didn't just say, hey, give us seven warm bodies. Anybody will do. You get them, we'll plug them in, and if they do well, fine, and if they don't, well, that's fine too. We just want people who are willing. Doesn't matter anything else about them. Whatever. That's not what happened. Look at the qualifications that are mentioned here. They wanted seven men who were full of the Spirit. In other words, these are people who are dependent on the Spirit of God. Not serving in their own strength because you know what happens when you serve in your own strength? You are going to burn out. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. It's going to happen. So the requirement of being full of the Holy Spirit meant these were people who were yielding to the ministry of the Spirit in their lives. And it was demonstrated by their actions. Their dependence on the Spirit of God was demonstrated in the church body. But also, there was a requirement that they be full of wisdom. Now, wisdom carries with it the idea of practical knowledge of God's Word. Not just knowing the Word of God, but knowing how it applies to a specific situation and seeing how Scripture can be used in everyday life. That was the idea of wisdom. And the men that were called upon to serve had to be people who were controlled by wisdom and by the Spirit of God. But then look at the middle of that third verse. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and then verse 4. We will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. You know, Lee Iacocca, he was the uh, head of Chrysler years ago. And he turned the company around. It was in a nosedive, and he kind of pulled up on the yoke there and got out of the nosedive. And uh, just, just a brilliant manager. But he said this, The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Kind of a pithy little saying, but it really makes sense. And that's what the apostles realized in this passage. Their main thing, ministry of the word and prayer. And if they were going to do that, they couldn't do every job and meet every requirement that took place in the congregation. They had to focus on the main thing that Jesus Christ had called them to do. And so they were counting on the church body to have people to step up and help in this. Now, when we come to the fifth verse, we meet the people that the church selected and Two of the people we're going to see again very shortly in the book of Acts. The first one mentioned, now I know it's probably spelled Stephan, but it's too hard to say Stephan for me, so I'm going to call him Steve. They chose Steve, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now again, look at the Qualifications. Full of faith. In other words, faith informed his everyday decision. What a great description. You know, I hope that when God describes me, he says that I was a man full of faith. What greater statement could be made about a person? God in the person of the Holy Spirit describes Stephen in this way. So it was true of him. He was a man who was full of faith. And once again, we see that requirement of being full of the Holy Spirit. A dependent life. You know, listen, when you are a person of faith, you depend on the Spirit of God. Faithful people are Spirit-filled people who depend on God's Spirit to carry on the work of ministry. So this describes all seven of these people. We'll also meet Philip a little bit later in the 8th chapter. We're going to find that God used him as an evangelist. So here are two of the seven that are mentioned later in the book of Acts. Prochorus, Nicanor, Temon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. We don't find them mentioned again in Scripture. But we do find them mentioned here. So isn't that enough? These were people of high spiritual caliber who were seeking to serve God. And so we find that God used these people. And then look at the sixth verse. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This decision was good with the rest of the church and they said look we know these people we've seen them function within our church body let's plug them into this ministry to this this important carrying out of ministering to widows let's plug them in and so they were excited about the solution that the apostles had come up with now think with me for a moment what if the grecian jews had said okay you found somebody to take care of the problem going forward we're still mad about what happened back here. What would have happened? The church would have continued to divide. The problem would have blown up. There would have been issues after issue, after issue, after issue, that would be brought up as people held on to an offense. You know, it's so important for the church body to let go of stuff. Isn't it easy for us to be historians? Isn't it easy to hold on to a slight that's either real or perceived and allow that to become a wedge between us and others? The church was happy with what solution God had given through the apostles, and they moved forward. And to me, the key to seeing God work in a church body is moving forward, not holding on to those things in the past that can divide us and harm us. So that's what this church body did. But then we see the work of the apostles described for us in verse 7. Because the apostles were able to go about the work that Jesus Christ had commissioned them to do, there was success. They weren't distracted by the issues of the church of that day. They were focused on what Christ had called them to do. And as a result, look at the 7th verse. The Word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Evangelism was taking place. As they ministered the Word and as they prayed, people responded and the church grew through conversion. You know, it's unfortunate, but many churches today grow by swapping sheep. We'll take sheep from this flock and we'll move them over to this flock and that's how we'll grow. In the Scripture, the model was people within the church body going out, seeking those who need to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, reaching them and bringing them into the church. In the early church, they didn't even invite unbelievers into the church so that they could hear the gospel, kind of like that life-saving station going out and saying, we'll bring the whole ship into the church and then we'll save them. That's not the idea. The idea is you go out and get them, bring them into the church after they've been saved. That's what we're to do. And that's what the apostles did. Their model for evangelism, go out when, bring them into the church. And then the church would go out when and bring them into the church. And that's what was going on. And amazingly, look at that seventh verse a little more carefully. Not only were there a number of disciples in Jerusalem that were increasing, but there was a large number of priests who became obedient to the faith. Think with me for a moment about what this meant for the priests. For the priest to come to faith, that was no easy thing. They had invested their lives, their heritage, had always been serving in the temple. So as the gospel was given and they were told, hey, it is not a works salvation that brings you into a relationship with God, they had to radically change their belief system They had to radically leave what they were following in the past, the idea that it's by the sacrifices and by me observing this religion that I have a relationship with God. They had to become convinced, in other words, place their faith in the truth, that their forgiveness comes because Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. They had to forget the old model, embrace the new model. Now that's hard. But that's what they were doing, and their obedience to the faith meant they subscribed to those truths and those teachings about Jesus Christ. They forgot about their own efforts, their own requirements, and they embraced God's. And you know, that's what it takes for a person to come into a personal relationship with the Father. We recognize that we need the provision that Jesus Christ gave when He died on the cross That it's not what we do that wins us, it's what Christ did. And so we yield ourselves to that truth. We obey that truth. That I forsake trying to live my own life apart from him and I embrace what Jesus did for me and trust that to be my salvation. This is what the priests did. And they were transformed as a result of it. But then we move in to the next part of this passage. When we come to the rest of the sixth chapter, we find the scene shift from the early church resolving this issue to Stephen. We isolate one of the seven that were selected by the church body and what we find is, Stephen is a dedicated servant, but he meets tremendous opposition. And what we're seeing here thematically is this: Sometimes opposition in the church comes from within. We run into those little disagreements. And those disagreements sometimes mushroom into big disagreements. And so when Satan is trying to harm the church, very often he'll try and harm it from within. But when it doesn't work to harm it from within, he will also harm it from without. And that's what we see here in the case of Stephen. Here is Stephen, this choice servant, this godly man. And we see another description of him as one who depends upon God's grace and power. Look at verse 8. Now, Steve, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Now, thus far, we've seen Stephen described as one who was full of the Spirit and wisdom, was full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and now a man full of God's grace and God's power. What a description of his character. What a beautiful picture of a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a man who was full of God's grace. What that means is this. He was dependent on the grace of God. Because it is the grace of God that empowers us and strengthens us to carry on his work. It's not me just getting there and trying real hard in my own strength. Although I must make a choice to serve God. But it's a dependence on what God provides. It's like me stepping out in obedience to do what God calls me to do, but then God empowering me as I move in the right direction. That's what Stephen was doing. He was dependent on the grace of God. He made the decision to serve God. God empowered him by His grace. And when it says here that he was full of grace and power, what a great combination. God provides strength through his grace. Now for the last several weeks we've looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 where Jesus tells the apostle Paul that his grace is perfected in weakness. When we are weak, but yet move in the direction that God would have us move, God's grace sustains us and gives us the power to serve. That's what Stephen was experiencing. And look at what he did. He was doing the same wonders that the apostles were doing. And what we see is once again an answer to prayer. Remember in the fourth chapter where the church was being persecuted, they prayed, Lord, let us continue to serve in boldness. And then they prayed, and we would ask that there would be even more signs and wonders Because remember, the signs and wonders were bringing people to the place to where they would listen to the gospel. And so this is what God did for Stephen as well. He allowed Stephen to do these works among the people that they might listen. But then look at the ninth verse. When we come to the ninth verse, we find that we have to defend God's truth and the power of the Spirit. Opposition arose, verse 9, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. And the men began to argue with Steve. You can picture this Satan hates people to be effective. So here is this godly man, effective in what he's doing. He's sharing the Gospel. People are responding and they say, we have to put a stop to this. So there's opposition that develops. Literally, what it's saying is they began to argue and dispute with Stephen. You know, when you are sharing the truth of God's Word, You can expect satanic opposition. He does not want the truth of God's Word to go out unrestrained. He stands in opposition to God's truth, so anything that he can do to stop the dissemination of God's truth, he is there and he will try his best to stop it. But not only do you have Satan who wants to stop the truth, you have our old nature, that sin nature in human beings that wants to resist the truth of God. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Jews demand a miraculous sign. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You know, Stephen didn't come to the place to where he got discouraged by the opposition. As a matter of fact, when we look in this text, we find that as they were standing up against Stephen, look at verse 10. They could not stand up against his wisdom or the Spirit by whom he spoke. God enabled Stephen to say what he needed to say by the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever experienced that? You're in a discussion with somebody And God puts a profound idea in your head as you're talking to that person. And it always amazes amazes me when that happens to me because I'm like, where did that thought come from? I'm not that smart. I know I didn't come up with that. And yet God will help me remember a verse, He'll help me remember a truth, and it's the Spirit of God. Well, this is what was taking place right here With Stephen. As these men were objecting, Stephen was giving answers. Answers from the Spirit of God. I think of what Paul wrote again in 1 Corinthians When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, as He was presenting Jesus Christ, He presented Him as the Messiah. Christ means Messiah, and as the one who was crucified, the one who died for them, the one who made provision for their sins. So this is the Jesus that Paul was presenting, and in verse 3 it says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That's the key. And listen, when we preach Christ crucified and depend on the Spirit of God to speak forth that truth, we will see lives changed. That's what the Word of God is reminding us of in these passages. And here is Stephen faithfully carrying out what God had called him to do. But then we come to verse 11. And what we find is this. If the opposition is out-argued, they turn to deceit. They will make accusations against our teachings, against us, and they will try to diminish the way people view followers of God. If they can't out-argue the follower of God, they resort to this. So look at the 11th verse and notice what we find. When they secretly or then they secretly persuaded some men to say we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God now does this charge sound familiar it should the same charges were leveled against Jesus Christ our Lord Jesus Christ these people leveled these charges against him and they accused him of blasphemy so Remember, this is the same group that opposed Jesus. So they employ the same strategy that they employed toward Christ. And so here they are making these false accusations. Look at verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was about 171 people. And here is Stephen brought before the Sanhedrin. Again, the intimidation factor. But what we're going to see here is as the Sanhedrin was intimidating Stephen, they had gone past just intimidation. They were now moving into elimination. And that's what Stephen would experience. Verse 13, They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. against the law again false accusation and yet what is truly ironic in all of this is that these were people who sought to defend the law what they were doing was breaking the law to defend the law one of the Ten Commandments thou shalt not bear what false witness against one another so what are they doing I'm going to bear false witness against this person who is teaching about Jesus in order to make him stop and defend the law, which just happens to say, thou shalt not bear false witness. Do you get that? Their issue was stop it at all costs. Play fast and loose with the rules when they work in our favor. Apply them to them when they work in our favor as well. (laughs) That was their desire, to crush the work of God through the ministry of this man, Stephen. And so their accusation was, they, verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, referring to the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Lies. Complete lies. And yet, Their goal, stop the witness at whatever cost. Verse 15 is amazing. Here are these people casting aspersions upon Stephen. They are clearly exclaiming that he is evil, that he's blasphemous, that he has no regard for God whatsoever. And God, I believe, does a specific miracle through Stephen. Because look at the 15th verse. When all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently on Stephen and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, that doesn't mean he was good-looking necessarily. When an angel is in front of God, the Shekinah glory of God is reflected in the face of that angel. I believe that there was actually even a miraculous glow that was taking place. And here are these defenders of Moses who were accusing Stephen, and every one of them would have remembered the story of Moses, right? Remember what happened when Moses went on to Mount Sinai and he received the tablets in the presence of God? Remember when he came back down off of the mountain, his face was described as what? Glowing. And so, it's a testimony to these people, I believe, that Stephen was indeed speaking for God. Warren Wiersbe said this, and I love it. It was as though God was saying, this man is not against Moses, he is like Moses. He is my faithful servant. What we find in this text is when we serve God, we can expect opposition. Satan will sometimes distract us by things that go on in the church body and cause us to lose our perspective on what we're really here to do. We can become that life-saving station that doesn't save lives. But if that doesn't work, then Satan will work from the outside. Sometimes he kind of d- does the old double whammy and gets us with both, right? Right? But what must we do? We must depend upon God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of His Word, the power of the Gospel. We must depend upon those things. And we must remember what God has called us to do. And God has called us to share His truth with those around us. This was realized, recognized by the early church. And as a result, God worked in this church amazingly. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you.